0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning in reference to the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. First Baptist Church of Christ, hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief Comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And all God's people said, You may be seated.
1: Bear with me again. Father, I wonder if the day will ever come when I stand in this spot and don't tremble. In in my flesh, I wish that it would be, I, I wish. In my flesh, Father, there would be a week that I would stand here and just feel so confident and comfortable in my skin. So steady on my feet that. uh, This would just be cruise control. This would just be a thing that I do. Father, in my spirit, I know that that's not right. there is a weight to handling your word and particularly taking your word and preaching it to your people. These are your people, as I said earlier, you purchased them. They are so very precious to you. Which means I have no right to say to them what I would like to say, but only the message that you have for them. So Father, I pray that you would Prevent me from saying anything that is not of you. Anything that is not only untrue, but unhelpful. Father, shut my mouth. Let me speak only your words. And I pray for these people, Father, that you would give them ears to hear. To hear with discernment by the work of your spirit, that they would know what is true. They would believe in it not just intellectually, but that their hearts would be drawn to it. They would stake their eternity on it, the whole of everything that they are resting on your word, knowing that if God is a liar, then I'm in deep, deep trouble, because I have nothing else. So Father we're asking a lot of you, but we're asking for the very things that you've promised in your word. So we know that you delight in giving us these things we've requested. That you'll do it for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We'll continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're still in Ephesians chapter 2, reading again this morning. Verse 11 all the way through. Verse 22. This is the holy, and inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. And peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the spirit. Now God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So I, I wonder, have you been enjoying God lately? We've talked a lot in these last few weeks, really over the last month, about peace and unity and reconciliation. Horizontal peace with man and vertical peace with God. We've talked about coming confidently and boldly into his presence. Last Sunday night, we gathered together to talk about helping each other get to heaven. <clears throat> Helping each other to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith. In short, much of what I've said over these last five years, helping each other to charge hard after God. But I have to wonder, even if you believe all that to be true, and even if you have devoted your life to that, have you been enjoying God? Westminster Shorter Catechism says that that's the chief end of man the reason for our existence the primary purpose why God has brought us into being the chief end of man is we might glorify God and enjoy him forever now you know of all people you know that these two things are not in any way at odds standing on the shoulders of men like Piper and Edwards and Lewis and many many more I have come to see and have tried to help you see the reality that we most fully glorify God when we enjoy him. As we express with the way that we live our lives and the way that we spend our time and the way we devote ourselves to God. When we express with all of these things to the world, he's worth more. I will gladly suffer all loss and I might just have more of him. You can take away everything that this world has promised me, everything that I've spent my life accumulating. You can take it all away if I could just have more of him because he's worth more than everything else. Surely you see how this glorifies God. This brings him honor. This shows forth his value to the watching world. So many of these men, they've come to the conclusion that what you might say is that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In church, we're people that have spent a great deal of time focusing on the majesty and the beauty and the all-surpassing worth of God. Exhorting one another to live constantly under the full weight of all that He is. The, the gravity of this God. Then. We would spur each other on to valuing and appraising and rightly comprehending this glorious God. And that really is the beginning of this thing. The beginning of coming into the presence of God with joy. The beginning of enjoying God. It really does begin with, you have to desire God. You have to want the God whose access, whom you have now been given access to. And that's the first hurdle to so many. They don't find any pleasure in God. They don't find any attractiveness and beauty in God. They find no compulsion to draw near to God. And so no, they don't run the race of faith. No, they don't shed every sin and weight that clings to them. They're not constantly asking, will this thing make me a better runner? Because they don't value the prize at the end of the race. They don't see anything worthy about the God who stands there and bids us to come to him. That's not you. You're people who delight in God. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At least I pray that's the case. I pray more than anything that you are people who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, his son. And you see that glory is worth more than anything else this world has to offer. But again, I ask, are you enjoying this glorious God? It's it's one thing to hold him in honor and to tremble at his name. It's one thing to highly esteem him above all other things. It's something altogether different to delight in Him. To enjoy Him. To find pleasures in His presence. Do you enjoy God? Do you even know what it would look like to enjoy God? Or does this sound just like a a, a preacher's flowery Sunday morning kind of talk? The kind of thing that sounds good in a sanctuary like this, but has no relevance once we step outside these walls. Has no relevance to the way we raise our children, to the way we do our job, to the way we cut our lawn, to the way we pay our taxes, to the way we treat our wife. No relevance to the real world. But it's a good enough question in here, am I enjoying God? I submit to you that not that long ago, a question like this wouldn't seem that strange. Christian men and women of a bygone era gathering together to spend hours together talking about the pleasures and the delight and the joy that they find in God. Heroes of the faith. Spiritual giants. Who devoted themselves, not just that their minds would comprehend the glory of God, but that their hearts would delight in this glorious God. Are you enjoying God? I recognize as I was thinking this through, maybe the the word enjoyment has become too subjective. You see, the centuries ago when these words were written, it was a much more much more stoic era, a day and age when men had to be reminded not to become too cerebral lest they forget to bring their affections with them when they come into the presence of God. But now we live in a day and age that it's addicted to emotions, that personal feelings are all that matters. How does this make you feel? How do you like to imagine God and what does that make you feel? And we live in a day and age that doesn't value anything that's beautiful any longer. Look at the buildings that are being built. Mankind's longing and their desire and their passion for things that are beautiful and the things that last. Do you wonder why the modern church house is built to look just like a Walmart? No longer are men putting up stone cathedrals meant to last through the ages as a testimony to the glory And the beauty and the joy that is found in God. So maybe because everything is just so light, this idea of joy and enjoyment and and happiness, it's all so transient and and fickle and and light and passing. Maybe it's difficult for us as a people that feel the weight of God, the infinite worth of God, to see how joy can have any place in that conversation. So maybe enjoyment isn't the word for us any longer. Maybe the question isn't, are you enjoying God? Maybe We focus on fellowship and communion. Maybe that's the question that I ask you. Do you find yourself experiencing real and meaningful and life-giving fellowship and communion with God? The Apostle John wrote in his first letter that he had given this gospel. He had faithfully delivered the truth that the word had become flesh. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. Koinonia. It's much more than just doing life together, it's much more than just living in a community together. It's something deep, something devoted, it's something intimate, and it's a participation in one another, it's a delighting and enjoying one another. It's a community, but it's a community that is marked by self-giving love. The kind of love that's able to delight in you. To celebrate with you when joy comes to you and to, to mourn with you whenever sad times come. Are you experiencing this with God? This kind of community and fellowship with God? I submit to you that's at the very heart of Christianity. I want you to think about all that was lost in the garden. What happened with the fall of Adam? No longer was he enjoying the presence of God, was he? He hid himself in terror. He was guilty and he knew it. And so he hid himself in terror. No longer was there enjoyment in God any longer. Oh, God was still glorious. And Adam knew it. But he didn't enjoy him. Even when in the presence of God, even when walking in the garden with God, he found himself far off and in no way near. This God who had once been his delight was nothing more than a terror. And we know that it is to rectify this, that Christ Jesus has come. 1 Peter three eighteen: for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He said, I've given these people, Father, whom you have given me, I've given them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. This knowing, it is more intimate than it is intellectual. It's more passionate and and personal than it is just some awareness of who this God is. And we know that as God's people, he has commanded us to enjoy him. He has commanded us to come into this type of communion and fellowship with him. I want you to think back to all the text I read to you last week from the book of Hebrews telling us, let us then draw near, draw near to God. We know that we're called to draw near to God like this, even when we don't feel like it. Habakkuk 317 says this, though the fig trees should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the folds, and there be no herd in all the stalls. He's saying basically, when everything goes wrong, when everything is falling apart, my very livelihood is crumbling before my eyes. When all of that happens, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. doesn't matter what you feel like. You've been commanded by God to come into his presence in joyful communion with him. But at the same time, we know that obedience involves the whole of man. Didn't God rebuke his people over and over and over again, saying, you people are close to me with your lips, but your hearts are far off. We know that he desires the whole of man. The drawing of our heart. Because what does it mean to draw near to God? Where do you go to draw near to God? Now, in some sense, that's what we do together in this place. As a people that God has built, we come together, and there's a special sense in which we find ourselves drawing near to God. Leanne talks about one of her grandbabies that she brings in here every time they're going on the way to church. What does she say? Where's God? Can I see God today? He has some sense that this is a place where God lives. I come to this place to draw near to God, but it's not a place to drawing near the heart. That's what we're called, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, commandment, do it. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Enjoying God? Well, now I come to the question that I ask you. It seems like I ask you this almost every week or maybe at least every other week. The question I ask you is, how does a man turn his heart? How does a man cause himself to delight in something he doesn't delight in? How do you do more than just pay lip service to this God as you come into this place where you know that God's people gathers? How do you cause yourself to delight in God? The answer, according to Jesus, is with man, it's impossible. For so many professing Christians, well-meaning professing Christians, that know with all their heart that God is God, that Christ Jesus is his son and that he has come is the only way to him. They believe with everything within them. But then they hear the words of Paul in Philippians 3 saying, I count everything else as rubbish and dung. Compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, my Lord. They hear King David saying in Psalm 16, in your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63 that we memorize together, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. In your presence, I will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, as with fatness and marrow. Church, you need to know that 25 men from this faith family, we worshiped God yesterday. As we sat around a table and we ate fat and rich foods to the glory of God. You see, it's not church stuff and then it's the world stuff. Christ Jesus is king of all. I looked at David yesterday, half jokingly, but not so much. As he sat to my left there at the table, I looked to him and I said, brother, do you understand that we may be the only ones in this restaurant that can rightfully enjoy these gifts? It's children of the king. But that this food that we taste, this sweetness and this fatness and this marrow that we eat, it is but a foretaste meant to draw our hearts to the only one that will satisfy And yet for so many, they hear these words and they see these analogies and they watch as men run hard, feeling the pleasure of God as they run. And it all sounds like hyperbole. Some of you, perhaps, you're sitting in here and you're thinking, that's the kind of stuff preachers are supposed to say. It feels like a pep rally. You're trying to get me jacked up for Jesus. But you have no awareness of this. You have no experiential knowledge of the things that I'm talking about. You know in your head that the essence of sin is delighting in anything more than you delight in God. But if you were honest, you don't know that you have ever hungered or thirsted for God a single day in your life. The whole thing just reeks of obligation and duty. And you don't want it to be this way. You you know that Christ Jesus is Lord and you are truly grateful, overwhelmed at the thought that he has made a way of access to the Father. You know the blessedness of reconciliation to God, but you would be lying if you said that you delighted spending time alone with God. You can't wait to spend those early morning hours alone with him. I say this, beloved, because I've experienced it. I promise. I say this because I continue to fight this at times in my life. Is this time with God? Is it necessary? Yes. Is it good? Yes. Does it bring me inexplicable joy? Not always. And so because of this, it builds into me the sense of shame. Look how difficult would it be for me to go to my wife and say, look, it's necessary for me to be with you. It's necessary and good for me to be faithful to you and to enjoy your company. But my heart's not in it. It's like we can't bear the thought of looking God in the eye. And so what do we do? We stay farther off. We stay farther away. We find ourselves distanced from the people that delight in Him like this because they make us incredibly uncomfortable. They challenge us with the fact that our taste buds are like that of a two-year-old. We become accustomed to all that is counterfeit and none that is real. So it becomes this cycle. We don't come to God, therefore we don't delight in God. We don't delight in God, therefore we stay far off from God. But again, I tell you, this is the very heart, the Christian experience, coming into communion with God, coming into the presence of God and enjoying Him, delighting in Him. There's a man named John Owen that wrote a great deal about this. Hadn't recommended you a book in a while. I'll recommend one for you. Communion with the Triune God. I'm so very thankful for men that have taken many of these Puritan works. You don't really have to translate works that were written in English, but sometimes you do. Bring them into a little more contemporary (laughs) English a little easier to understand. And don't worry, a lot of this is introduction. The book's only about that. I would commend this book to you. John Owen, Communion with the Triune God. On page 128, if you just want to go to that text? He says this. As much as we see the love of God, this much shall we delight in Him and no more. If the heart be once taken up with this, The eminency of the father's love, it cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared to him. If the love of the father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Put then this to the venture. Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the father, and see if your hearts not be wrought upon to delight in him. You who have run from him will not be able after a while to keep at a distance for even a moment. Beholding the love of God. It's gazing upon the love of God. You will never come joyfully into the presence of a God that you worry may be unloving or harsh or cruel or cold. You will never come frequently and expectantly into the presence of a God that you don't know how he will receive you. Again, intellectually, we know that he bids us to come and we know that God loves us. But for so many believers, they have no understanding of the basis of that love. They can't explain to you how and why God loves you and how you can have any assurance of this love as he bids you to come. It all feels like pixie dust and self-help affirmations. And the reality is that saying to ourselves over and over and over again that God is love, that's not going to turn your heart. Because, beloved, you must know that God is love. And he flooded the earth, destroying millions of sinners in his righteous judgment, saving only Noah and his family of eight. God is love. And he commanded Joshua and the Israelites to wipe out entire nations, including men, women, and children. God is love. And the whole world is still filled with evil and hurt and suffering and loss. God is love and we shall all stand before him as righteous judge of the universe in the final days to give an account for every word and thought and deed that we have ever had. Beloved, God is love, but God is holy. And we are sinners. And so what good does an awareness of the surpassing worth and glory and value of God do if you're terrified to come near because that very same glory might consume you. What good does it do to know about the loving nature of God if you know that you yourself are completely unlovable? We've got to have some understanding of the basis of God's love. We've got to look to the ways in which he speaks about his love, the grounding of his love in his person, in his purposes, in his promises, as it's been revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You look there, you see his love, and it is only then that you will find your heart drawn to him. Not looking at yourself, not trying to white knuckle it, not trying to muster some better feelings, not trying to surround yourself with godly people. Although all those things may help, it's looking to the love of God in Christ. And it's there that you'll find your heart changed. Now that's hard work at times. It means studying the scriptures. It means spending 58 weeks in the book of Ephesians before you get out of the second chapter. It means resting in these promises. It means taking every last ounce of meat off the bone. Because all the while, what we're asking God to do is make me delight in you. Change my heart to enjoy you. Now, this isn't just the thought of John Owen. I ask you to hear the words again, going back to John's first letter, 1 John 4, 9 to 10. In this is love, excuse me, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation For our sins. If your understanding of the love of God doesn't find its grounding in the appeasing of God's wrath by His own Son, you're not seeing it. He goes on in verse 16 to say, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, His love is perfected within us. Perfected, by the way, doesn't mean that our love becomes perfect. The root word there is telos. Sound familiar? It's the end, it's the goal, it's the purpose, it's the fulfillment of all things. Where does God's love find its fulfillment? So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has nothing to do with, excuse me, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We see the love of God in the propitiation of his wrath by the giving of his son. As we see this wrath, we no longer are filled with fear of him. We know there's nothing to fear because we know that we can stand before him on that day of judgment with great confidence that all has been taken taken care of, all has been made right in Christ. I pray that you've not lost your sense of awe and wonder at this. John's not the only person to talk about this. Go to Romans 8 and read all the the grounding for our assurance and our confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That you may see the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus, his unmerited, undeserved, self-driven love of God placed upon an unworthy people. And then you draw near. Your heart delights in drawing near, not filled with fear, not filled with hesitancy, not filled with concern that he might turn you away, but you come boldly. And the more time you spend there, the greater your taste for him develops. So I say all that by way of introduction, not just to this morning's sermon, but the next couple of weeks, I believe. Because we're going to be eventually, as we move on, after we get through verse 18, we're going to move on for a while from this talk about reconciliation with God. We'll come back to it again in chapter three, but we'll move on from this idea. and my fear is that we would walk out of this place as a people that know a great deal more, about, know a great deal more about God. And we know a great deal more about the reconciliation that's offered to us in Christ Jesus, and we know a great deal deal more about what Christ Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, and yet we will leave this place having no greater hunger for God than when we first began. Having no deeper sense of communion with God than when we first began. Having no increased confidence in approaching God with joy than when we first began. So i say all this by way of introduction because I need you to see that what I'm showing you here isn't just a history about how God has made communion with Him possible. It isn't even just an invitation from God to come and enjoy that communion as we gaze. That's a good word. As we gaze. As we rest. As we bathe. As we behold the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, we ourselves are being changed. Sound like hocus pocus? Sound like mysticism? Would you rather me give you 10 points for how to love God more? Three rules for life that will guarantee you'll enjoy greater communion with God. I remind you that the same God has said that it's as we behold the glory of the Lord that we ourselves are being transformed. How are you being transformed? Beholding, gazing, looking, bathing, resting. Men become what they behold, men become like that which they behold. So my prayer is that God would open the eyes of your heart. Sound familiar? With eyes of faith, you would behold the love of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. You'd be changed. I pray that as we conclude this sermon, we finish out the rest of the time just dipping our toe in the water of this morning's text, I pray that it would be something like the Grinch on Christmas morning, that your heart would grow how many times? Three times? You would find yourself drawing near to God even as you didn't know it was happening. Your capacity to love and your capacity to delight and your capacity, capacity, capacity to feast on him just grows and grows and grows. So that nothing else can satisfy this hunger. So that you would have a hunger for steak that cotton candy could never again satisfy. So that you've tasted the real thing so that all the artificial flavors and sweeteners and all the other stuff that they put in our... That's not what I want. Give me the real. That's my hope for us. So let's look together. Verse 17. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So context clues alone tell us that the he here is Christ Jesus. He came and he preached. So the question that we might ask ourselves is, when is he talking about Christ Jesus preaching? We know that Christ Jesus very much so had a preaching ministry. We know that just about the time the crowds would swell, he said, I must leave here and go on to the next town that I may preach this gospel for this is why I've come out. So is what he's talking about here when he says that Christ Jesus, he came and he preached. Is he talking about making reference to the three and a half year earthly ministry of Jesus Christ? That could be it. I think it's probably not, though, because we know that so much of Jesus ministry, the vast majority of Jesus ministry, it was devoted not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. And he talks here about preaching to you who are far off and those who who are near, the Jew and the Gentile, and we see numerous interactions. Think about the Syrophoenician woman. Think about the instructions that Jesus gave as he sent his disciples out. He said, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. That those are the people to whom which to whom this gospel is meant to be first proclaimed. Now there were certainly exceptions to this rule, but they were exactly that. They were exceptions. Even after the resurrection, you think about Jesus' interactions with the Uh, the men on the Emmaus road or with his disciples in the upper room, it was clear he was continuing to preach. He was continuing to teach. He was continuing to show this gospel to the Jews, to those who were near. So then some have wondered, okay, if it isn't Jesus' three and a half earthly earthly preaching ministry that Paul has in mind here, is he maybe talking about the resurrection? Excuse me, the crucifixion. Was it the crucifixion of Christ Jesus that was his preaching of this peace? Again, it could certainly be. You'll remember that in John 12, we read about these Greeks that wanted an audience with Jesus and his disciples came and one of the most beautiful lines in all of scripture came on the lips of these Greek men. They said, sir, we want to see Jesus. doesn't seem to me that Jesus went and gave them this audience, but instead he says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is making clear. Now has come the time to do what I came for, to lay down my life, to crush the head of the serpent, to be raised up from the earth upon a cross. And you must know that when I do this, when you see me raised up as a man cursed, nailed to a tree, you must recognize that in that I am drawing all men to myself. This isn't a universalistic picture. This isn't a promise that all men come to Christ. In fact, it doesn't even say, in the original Greek, it doesn't even say all people. It just says all. Panta. Y'all are familiar with this word by now. It means all. Jews, Gentiles, Greek, those who are far, those who are near. All people. They would look upon me, see me raised, come to me. They will find salvation. Preaching to the whole world and the raising up. So is that what he means? Again, it certainly could be. But notice that Paul says here, he preached to you who were far off. Many of those men were not there to to witness the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And so I, I submit to you that maybe Paul has something altogether different in mind. I want you to remember, I looked back, it was, I think it was March of last year when we preached about Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And what it meant for Paul to be an apostle. And you remember how much joy he found in proclaiming himself like this. I'm an apostle. I'm one who has been sent out in the authority of Christ to speak his word, to teach his good news. Paul had done some remarkable things. You think about all the ways he had suffered for Christ. He was the one caught up into the third heaven and saw things that, if I can paraphrase, he can't tell you because your face would melt. He says, but more than being known by any of these things, what I desire to be known by, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Not because of anything in me. I was the chief of the sinners. I persecuted this Christ Jesus who I now represent. Yet you know, we talked about the fact that the apostle this is one that has set out in the authority and the power of Christ and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You remember that Paul said that he was one untimely born. As Christ intersected his life there on the road to Damascus in Acts 26:18, he says what happened there like this, that Christ himself comes to him and tells him he's sending him to preach to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In this same letter, if you just look down in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, we read this. It's a mystery of Christ has been given to Paul as a gift of God's grace. And he says, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He, Christ Jesus, came and preached. How? Through Paul and the other apostles. Do you remember all that Jesus promised with regards to the coming Holy Spirit? He says to them, he says, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit whom my Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to a remembrance of all that I said to you. But he's not just a remembrance bringer. He's not just a reminding agent. It's before that that he says, I won't leave you alone as orphans. I will come to you. The coming of the Spirit of Christ Jesus is the coming of Christ. So he brings them to remembrance of all that Christ has taught them as he walks with them and shows them how to glorify him in the preaching of this good news. It is the work of Christ. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21 that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that we can know that these inspired words, the Apostle Paul, they were given to him by Christ through the work of his Spirit. These are the words of Christ. Holy, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of Christ. We live in a day and age where so many people are taking umbrage with much of what the Apostle Paul taught. And so you'll hear these words on the lips of professing Christians. That's just what Paul thought. I'll stick with Jesus. Beloved, that is a very, very slippery and fast slope to completely rejecting the faith. The words of Paul as delivered to us in the Holy Scriptures are the word of Christ. But more than this, we who go forth with those words upon our lips, we who go and preach the same apostolic message that's been given to him, you need to recognize that those two are the words of Christ. Remember that he didn't just say to the apostles in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He says to us, surely I will be with you even unto the end of the age. As you teach men to observe all things I have commanded you, I am there and I am with you. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, excuse me, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Every time you go and share this apostolic message, you are making an, an appeal, an offer, an invitation, an exhortation of Christ. I submit to you that this, even this, is what the Apostle Paul has in mind the preaching of peace by Christ Jesus. Talk about treasure and earthen vessels. This is why we take teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel so seriously. This is why I tremble when I stand in this place and many of you tremble as you either sit in a Sunday school class and you teach the word of God or you sit around your kitchen table and you handle the word of God with your children or you find those fortuitous providential opportunities at work to open the word of God and share them with a coworker that's why you tremble. You're ambassadors for Christ. With no right to speak your own message but to speak his. With no less assurance that the promises you make as found in this word will come true. You don't have to hear them from the words of the Apostle Paul. You can hear them from an ordinary brother. They carry the same authority, the same weight, the same assurance. Christ has said it, therefore it will come true. It's Christ Jesus himself who has preached these words. He came and he preached peace. I've gone to great lengths, and I pray that you see it. You see, I'm not stretching the text beyond what God's given us. I've gone to great lengths to show you that Christ himself, in the preaching of this peace, what he's preaching is himself. Scripture says, clearly, Christ is our peace. He's come to accomplish the peace. He is that peace. Then he turns around and he preaches that peace. Do you recognize that Jesus Christ was always the subject of his own sermons? The Apostle Paul is going to preach nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. What's Christ going to preach? Beginning with the Old Testament and the law and the prophets and the history and all the rest, he preached Christ Jesus and him crucified. The person and the works of Christ Jesus, that's the story. That's the subject of every single sermon, true sermon, that's ever been preached. So Christ Jesus came and he preached himself. This word preached, it's euangelizo. It, the noun that we get that verb from, it's euangelion. It's the word gospel. It's the good news. Christ came and he proclaimed the good news. And that's what true evangelism is. You know, sometimes you hit a point and you go, okay. You ever driving your car? And, and you're watching, especially if you drive old cars like me, and you're, you're watching the... Uh, The the heat, uh, what is that called? The thermostat or something, right? And it's fixing to get up in the red, or maybe it's just your RPM's fixing to get up in the red. In a good way. I don't want my tone to drown out the message. That's what true evangelism is. It's a proclamation of a thing that has been done. Evangelism is not calling people to a decision. Although it is right and good to exhort people to respond to the news that you have just given them. Evangelism. Evangelizo. It is heralding. It is proclaiming. It is announcing the good news of God in Christ Jesus. What he has done. I told you last week. I told you last week that the gospel is the answer for everything. For everything, not just the moment of your salvation, but as you discipline your kids, as you handle your money, as you go to work, as you suffer for Christ. The gospel is the answer for everything, but you've got to understand the gospel isn't your response. We live in a day and age where so many men and women, they use this phrase, I'm living the gospel. You can't live the gospel because you're not Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always a done, never a do. You don't do the gospel. The gospel's been done. Your job is to proclaim it. To announce it. To herald it. To believe it. Done. That's why Jesus says in the beginning of his earthly ministry, going back to our time in Mark, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He doesn't say repent and believe and that's the gospel. The gospel isn't repent and believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done. It's a proclamation. Kerygma is a fancy word men use. It's exactly that. You're proclaiming something. You're taking the truths of Jesus Christ and you're holding them up to the world. There is a proper response to this. There is a faithful response to this. There is a way in which what is true in the gospel is attained, comes to have impact on your life. But your response isn't the gospel. Christ Jesus came and he preached Christ and him crucified. I, and I camp out on this because if we're not careful, everything we do then just becomes the gospel. You see these churches, they just, they slap the name gospel on everything they do. Well, not everything. What are you talking about? The gospel is the truth and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we've got to understand, what is this message? What is the message of Jesus Christ? What is this peace that he came to preach? What is this gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek? What is the gospel? Could you answer that question? It's the gospel which saves. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that the God of the universe created everything that existed. Visible, invisible, heaven and on earth. And he created man after his own image. And he gave this man a commandment if the man was to obey this commandment, there was the promise. If this man would perpetually and perfectly fulfill this commandment, the promise was life with God. If the man refused to uphold and to obey this commandment for disobedience, the punishment was death. And we know that the man disobeyed. He ate of the tree of life. And that through that one man sin came into the world and through sin came death and it spread to all men, so that every man who is born is born guilty before God, condemned and cursed before God, and that our very natures are turned against God so that we pile sin upon sin upon sin to the point that every man who has ever been born stands condemned, justly and rightly condemned before a holy and righteous God. But God. But God. In goodness and mercy and grace and love, He sent His beloved Son, born of a virgin, under the law, but not in sin. Born pure. Because He was born of a virgin, not born in sin, born pure and holy and right and clean. Fully God and fully man. And He fulfilled all righteous, righteousness perfectly fulfilling the law of God, doing everything that love and law demanded so that his righteousness might be imputed to you so that you might exchange your wretchedness, your stain, your sin, your curse in exchange for his righteousness. That he who knew no sin became sin. That Christ died as one under a curse, a man nailed to a tree. Our sins placed upon him. Our sins also nailed to that tree so that they may be no more satisfying the father's wrath in full. So the scripture says it pleased the father to crush him. The father crushed his son for the sake of our sins. The father crushed his son as one under a curse. He who knew no sin. And that three days later, Christ Jesus rose from the grave. For our justification is evidence that he truly is the son of God. Christ Jesus rose from the grave he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, that there he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, so that if any would trust in him, any who would trust in him, we would be forgiven of our treason and we would be clothed in his perfect righteousness, no longer condemned, no longer under a curse, no longer needing to be fearful of God, that in addition to this, he would make us holy, he would mold us, he would shape us, he would form us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So that we're not only clothed in his righteousness, he makes us righteous, that he might adopt us into his family. So in the words of Paul, we might access him as father, not just as God, not just as master, not just as Lord, but we come as father with the same rights that Christ Jesus himself has before his father. That one day he's coming back To raise us in glory. That we may be set free from the presence of sin once and for all. That we may enter into eternity. That we may enjoy finally and fully and once and for all. That we may enjoy the presence of God for all time. That's the gospel. That's the thing that saves. That's the free peace that Christ Jesus came to preach. To you who are far off and to those who are near. So my prayer for us this morning, I'm not just told you something you don't know. I presented to you the gospel that you have known, that you have rested on for the whole of your Christian life. My prayer for you this morning, though, is that perhaps for the first time you would see the love of God in that gospel like never before. That you would find your heart delighting in him. That you would find your confidence growing in him. And that from this point forward, you would joyfully come into the presence of God and you would delight. You would find uh, pleasures. You would feast. Evermore. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Holy One of God has come, becoming fully man, he who is fully God, that he died in our place, taking our sins upon him, and that he rose again three days later. We thank you for all of this. We thank you, Father, we can have the assurance that if you would not spare your own son, surely you would not withhold any good thing for us. And therefore, we may come to you boldly and confidently, trusting that you'll receive us as sons and daughters. Father, help us to swell with joy the reality of this good news. Help us to enjoy you as we should. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name
0: we pray. Amen.